Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Hi, thank you for joining me today for Special Education with Ashley Barlow. Today we're going to talk about inclusion and least restrictive environment. Before we dive into that though, I'd like to welcome you to the Special Education and Advocacy Lab, a digital empowerment training that opened yesterday on September 28, 2020. Now, before we talk about the digital empowerment training, I'd like to tell you about Ashley Barlow Company. Our mission is to empower, inspire, and build confidence in IEP members by providing a framework that joins legal principles of special education with the interests and values of everyone at the IEP table. This training brings together all of those principles. It's a 10-week training that will be sequential and affordable. I'm going to walk you through the IEP from start to finish, and along the way, I'm going to provide several advocacy tips, just like I do in these podcasts. I'm gonna take you from frustrated and overwhelmed to empowered and inspired. I hope you'll join me. Log on to the website at www.ashleybarlowco.com to save your seat for the digital empowerment training that I'm calling Special Education and Advocacy Lab. If you are interested in multiple licenses, please email me at ashley at ashleybarlowco.com and I'll be happy to talk to you about purchasing multiple licenses for your business or organization. Okay, let's dive in to least restrictive environment and inclusion. In 1954, the United States Supreme Court heard the case of Brown versus Board of Education. Now, of course, we know that Brown versus Board of Education dealt with racial segregation in schools. However, when we look at Brown versus Board of Education, we can see inclusionary tones. One particular sentence from that case has been cited over and over again in inclusion cases as they relate to children with disabilities. The quote from the case is this, in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. And that's really the foundation of an inclusion argument. Separate but equal does not work in education. Now, when we look at the federal law, IDEA, I-D-E-A, there are two mandates as it applies to inclusion. The first is that children receive a free, appropriate public education. Oftentimes we will abbreviate that and call it a FAPE. Free, appropriate public education in the least restrictive environment for them. Now today is the day that we're talking about least restrictive environment. The second mandate from IDEA is that the IEP, that individual education plan, contain a statement describing the extent to which the child is going to participate in the general education environment 
with his or her non-disabled peers. We know that IDEA promotes inclusion to the extent appropriate for each child. I'm going to read to you the law because it's so important. What the law says in IDEA, in the federal law, is this. To the maximum extent appropriate, children with disabilities are to be educated with children who are not disabled. And special education classes, separate schooling, or other removal of children with disabilities from the regular education environment occurs only when the nature or the severity of the disability of the child is such that education in a regular class with the use of supplementary aids and services cannot be achieved satisfactor satisfactorily. That is what the law says verbatim. And what that tells us is that we've got a continuum of placements and at every place along that continuum, we have to layer on supplementary aids and services. Now, how does that look in education? So let's talk about that continuum of services, or pardon me, continuum of placements first. So the least restrictive placement is the general education classroom where the non-disabled peers are learning. That is the least restrictive environment, the least restrictive placement. From there, we might go to the general education classroom with push-in services. So a resource teacher, a special education teacher, an intervention specialist, whatever your state or your district calls them, could push services in to that general education classroom. So the special education component of the IEP and that situation would be implemented in the general education classroom with the non-disabled peers in that environment also. The next placement might be that the child be in the general education classroom the majority of the day, but then that services be pulled out. So the child would be pulled out of that general education classroom in order to access the special education and or the related services. That means that the services in the special education would be done in a different room, a resource room, a special education room, an intervention room, whatever your district or your state calls it. Then after we have push pull out services, the next more restrictive setting might be a self-contained environment, a special education setting that is purely special education. Now, some children do spend just a portion of their day in a self-contained classroom. So that would be less restrictive than a child that spends all of their day or the majority of their day in a self-contained classroom. We're working our way from least restrictive to the most restrictive. From there, the next most more restrictive placement would be a special school, so an alternative placement, a school that is designed to help the child with the child's particular need. And then of course, hospital settings and homebound settings are also appropriate, and those are considered the most restrictive. So now let's talk about that continuum of placements, and let's talk about how we add in supplementary aids and services at each level of the placement. 
Well, what the law tells us is that we have to consider the least restrictive environment for the child. So we might start with the general education environment and say, okay, could we push in the special education services and the related services into that general education classroom? And if we could do that, what supplementary aids and services could we add to the IEP in order to help the child to access that general education classroom and the special education in that setting? We might need to add in some movement breaks. We might need to amend the curriculum. We might need to um, provide the child sensory breaks. We might need to provide the child with additional adult assistance, an aid or an instructional assistant. All of those things, any supplementary aid or service that we can add should be considered before we go to the next um, restrictive environment, which would include pull out services. So first we try gen ed, then we try gen ed with push in services, and then we can consider pull out services. And if we're considering pull out services, we need to consider what supplementary aids and services that we can add to the IEP before we suggest a self-contained classroom or a self-contained unit. So even if we're considering pull out, then we have to first consider what we could add to pull out, what supplementary aids and services, what help we could provide the child before we say that the child should go to a self-contained unit. That's how we approach that uh, continuum of services and how we insert those supplementary aids and services into the continuum of placements. Now, as we're going down um, the, the list, there are certain things that we should consider. So one of the things that we'll consider is the actual progress monitoring of the child. How well is the child doing in the current situation, in the current setting? I have people come to me for these arguments very, very often. They say, we need to make an argument for inclusion. We need to push inclusion with our district. They're considering a self-contained unit or they're considering an alternate placement and I don't think it's appropriate for my child. And so the first thing that I do is I say, I wanna see the data. I wanna see that progress monitoring because I want to see how the child was doing in the current setting and what was affecting that data. If we had a regression, why? Was there a change of teacher? Was there a disruptive student in the class? Was the child dysregulated? I want to see what the data says. And if the data doesn't show any regression, there's no reason to change placement. But if it does, I want to look at other factors that could have affected that data so that we know the whole picture, matching the objective data with the subjective information that's affecting that data. Another thing to consider is whether or not there a specialized environment is needed in order to provide a free appropriate public education. So sometimes we look at these things on the flip side. 
and we say, you know, you can't meet my child's needs here in this school. My child's needs are much more significant. My child is not progressing and we need to move to a more restrictive environment. And in those cases, I'm oftentimes saying that a specialized environment is necessary in order for my child to be able to learn skills and then to generalize them, or in order to manage my child's behavior, or in order for my child to make any progress with reading. In those cases, we look at the data to say, this isn't working here, and we need to move to a more specialized setting or a specialized program. Another thing that we could consider is whether a certain technique or a certain environment or certain instruction is needed. Oftentimes we think about this with behavior. If a child is having a very difficult time behaviorally in their school, it might be a good idea to research behavior strategies and environments that would be more appropriate for the child. And in that case, we can say to the school, the child's not making progress, we're having this behavioral spiral, and we need to look at some kind of special technique, special environment, specialized instruction that's available in this different setting at this different school. And if that's the case, then alternate placement might be appropriate. In addition to that, we, in those cases, we might argue that a student has a low incidence disability. And that as a result of that, the child requires a peer group with similar profiles where the child can grow. So if the child's not making any progress, we might say, well, that's because nobody else here is like this child and they need a similar peer group in order to make any progress. Similarly, sometimes in alternate placement, children need 24-hour care and they need that um, oversight and um, the, the behavioral strategies and sometimes psychological care and those sorts of things in order to keep the child safe and then also in order to make the education appropriate for the child. Sometimes a child's behavior is disruptive and if that's the case, we have to consider that in considering alternate placement. So if a child's presence in the general education setting or in the current setting, even if it's a self-contained setting, is disruptive or dangerous to the other children, then it is appropriate to consider a more restrictive setting for that child. Certainly, we also have to consider the cost of the education in whatever setting we are proposing. Now those at the end of that list, we talked a lot about alternate placement. Why did I bring those into a discussion about inclusion? Because those are things that we talk about in order to have a more restrictive setting. You could use those things, those factors to consider in promoting inclusion. So if your child does not need a specialized environment in order to have an appropriate education, if your child does not need a specialized technique or environment or instruction strategy, if your child does not have a low incidence disability and need a peer group that is very similar to your child's, if your child doesn't need that 24-hour care, if your child doesn't need, um, if your child's presence is not going to be disruptive to the other children, 
then you can say, hey, listen, these are the things that we would consider in, in choosing a more restrictive environment, and none of those apply. So therefore, the correct environment for my child is, and then fill in the blank. Now, there was a case in the Ninth Circuit out in California. The case is called Sacramento City Unified School District Board of Education versus Rachel H. And it gave us a four-part consideration. If you don't live in the Ninth Circuit, then this might not apply to your particular case. I don't live in the Ninth Circuit and this doesn't apply to me, but it's a nice four-factor consideration, a nice test that we can apply just kind of in general terms as we're thinking about inclusion and least restrictive environment. The first thing to consider is the educational benefit of the general education setting. So what is the child going to get if we're in gen ed? What's that gonna look like? What is the benefit going to be? Now I'm gonna talk about this when we talk about individual strategies that I use, advocacy strategies that I use when I'm helping parents to navigate an inclusion discussion with their, with their um, IEP teams at the end. That's how we're going to conclude today. But the first thing to consider is the educational benefit of that general education setting. The second thing is the non-academic benefit of the general education setting. There's all kinds of benefits that children get by just being in a, a general education environment. They have the social benefit. There's the um, good peer model benefit. There's behavioral benefits. There are certainly speech benefits. Um, there's a routine benefit. Different people knowing that there are lots of different teachers that are in charge. Lots of different things that we can think about when we talk about non-academic skills, functional skills, related service skills, activities of daily living, environmental benefits, etc. The third factor that we have from this Rachel H. case is the effect of the general education placement on teachers and on other students. So how burdensome would it be to educate this child with a disability in the general education classroom? And how disruptive or distracting or significant would it be to educate the child in the general education classroom as it pertains to the child's peers? Sometimes we have to consider behavior. We also have to consider any special need by way of time and attention that the child has. Oftentimes we do these discussions in kindergarten which to me is such an early time to be talking about this because kindergarten in most states is still significantly play-based. But one consideration that we have to think about in kindergarten for a lot of children is toileting. And if a child is not potty trained, then that could have an impact on the other children simply because that if the child needs assistance with toileting or with diapering or anything like that, it's going to take away the time of the teacher in the classroom. Now, don't forget in that case, we need to think about supplementary aids and services before we say this is not the right placement. So if we're considering gen ed and we say, oh, but toileting, we would have to spend 20 minutes four times a day to diaper the child. Well, that's when we might think about adding on some kind of additional adult assistance, whether that's for the entire day, like a one-to-one -one teacher's assistant or aide or instructional assistant, whatever your school calls it. 
or whether it's somebody that just comes for those particular times when the student needs assistance, like when the student needs to be diapered or, or um, helped in the restroom. So that is a consideration that we think about when we talk about um, the effect on teachers and other students. The fourth consideration is one that we can never ignore and that's the cost. How much is it going to cost to place this child in the general education classroom? If we know, for example, that the child needs a highly skilled um, teacher's assistant, someone that has very specific training to help the child access that general education classroom, and if that kind of person is available in a self-contained unit, and if there isn't any other money, any if, pardon me, if that person, let's say it's an instructional assistant, and perhaps they're a sign language interpreter. Well, something that we have to consider is the cost of hiring a second sign language interpreter, because if there's already one that works in the self-contained unit, and now we're suggesting one that goes into a regular general education second grade classroom, that's a consideration. It's not a deal breaker, but it is something that we need to think about. And perhaps we can work around it. Perhaps we don't need this specialized person. In the case of a sign language interpreter, you probably would. Um, but if it's a different circumstance, perhaps we can work around it in order to see if that person can work part-time in each setting. Or if we can have just that person for these certain times of the day and then a different person, and so maybe two different people can alternate, but one costs the district less money. If we say, well, it's, they're gonna say it's about money and I'm gonna say it's about the child, we won't get anywhere. We have to consider the money as part of the discussion so that we can work around it. If we don't consider everybody's interest at the IEP table, we'll never come to an agreement, we'll stay at impasse and nothing will ever happen for the child. So as this case said in Rachel Ace, Rachel H., we have to consider the cost of the placement. So the four factors again, educational benefit in the general education setting, non-academic benefit in the general education setting, the effect of that general education placement on teachers and other students, and then number five, pardon me, number four, the cost of the placement. Now, I want to wrap up today by talking to you about some of the strategies that I use when I'm caught into these cases. But first I want to read you a, a quote from the National Council on Disability. This is from February 7th of 2018. And what it says is, just as the law does not define special education as a place, but rather the configuration of services and supports as defined in the student's IEP, inclusion is not a place but rather a systemic approach to uniquely addressing student learning and social engagement with the same instructional frameworks and settings designed for the whole school community. Special education isn't a place. Inclusion isn't a place. There has to be a systemic framework by which we craft and we curate the right plan for the child. Now, how do I make an inclusion argument if I am arguing or if I am advocating that a child be in a less restrictive environment than the environment that the school is suggesting? 
As I have said to you before, I have a child that has Down syndrome. And in the Down syndrome community, we talk inclusion a lot. This is unfortunately a theme that comes up in a lot of cases that involve children with Down syndrome. And so I want to talk to you about some of the things that I say in IEP meetings in order to help a parent or a family um, make that argument for a general education classroom or a less restrictive environment. So the first thing that we do is we really focus on that continuum. And we really start and say, okay, well, here's the continuum and I lay it out. So we're gonna start in gen ed and then we're gonna do push in and then we're gonna do pull out and then we're gonna go all the way down. We're gonna pass by self-contained and we're gonna go all the way down to homebound. And I explain it and I say, I know that that's the way we do it. And then, and I kind of use my finger to, to do like an insert, almost like a carrot. Then we have to add those supplementary aids and services. So we have to consider gen ed and we add in supplementary aids and services. And then we consider push in and we add in additional supplementary aids and services. And then we do pull out and then we do self-contained and we work our way down the continuum. And so I say, why don't we start at gen ed and talk about what that would look like? And sometimes, what I need to know is, what's the schedule look like? What do we talk about? What do, oftentimes, as I said before, this is kindergarten that we're talking about. So what's a kindergartner's day look like? Oh, well, my child could do that. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, but they might need a little bit of help with that. Oh, centers, well, you know, my child also has ADHD, so they might not stay on task. Who would be there to help them stay on task? Or could we shorten the length of time that each center is for my child so that maybe they don't have to stay involved or stay on task as long? Okay, well, that would be a good supplementary aid. That would be a good modification for the child. And so sometimes we have to look at the schedule of the day to look to see what kind of supports we need to layer on in order for the child to be successful. I oftentimes think that it helps to have a glimpse into the day of the environments that we're suggesting. So we layer on those supplementary aids and services, and we try to do that by looking inside the classroom. Another thing that I do is I like to rely on any kind of witness that I want to bring in. Now, as I've said before, I like to advocate under the shadow of the law. And sometimes people think it's a harsh reality, but, but a reality nonetheless is that special education is founded in the law. And if we cannot come to an agreement, and if somebody so chooses, we could file a due process case and we could have an administrative law judge or some panel of people that are appointed by the Department of Education, depending on, on how your state does it, we could have people make a decision on what the placement should be. And so I like to look at things and say, okay, well, how would I do this if I had to take it to court, if I had to take it to due process? Well, one of the things that I would do is I would bring in witnesses, people that could come in and talk about what they thought the placement should be. So we could use expert witnesses like therapists that have worked with the child or doctors that have worked with the child, maybe even early intervention specialists or tutors or people that have worked with the child outside. What do they think about how the child would do in the setting that the parents are proposing? 
Then we could also talk about lay witnesses, people that aren't experts on the subject, but people that have interacted with the child, perhaps in the setting that you've suggested. So if parents are pushing for a general education class um, placement with some pull out for resource or special education, then the parents might ask a coach or a family member or a babysitter to talk about how the child does when the child's with their non-disabled peers in their community. Maybe they go to church and in their church group, they're in a Wednesday night class for an hour with children that are the same age and they do just fine. Well, then we might want the church school teacher to come in to talk about how well the child does, what strategies work, what kind of supplementary aids and services they get, even if they're informal in that church setting, so that we can look at it in different environments and really paint the picture of how well the child does in the community. Another thing that we might consider is using the IEP itself to our advantage. So one thing that we have to consider is the amount of time that it takes to monitor the goals and to provide that specially designed instruction for each goal. If a child is in kindergarten and has 15 or 18 goals and every single one of them has to be monitored by the special education teacher, well, we've got a situation where we have a lot of time to implement those goals and to progress monitor. So maybe we ought to think about reducing some of those goals and really focusing on what's important in order to kind of remove the time from that special education teacher, remove some time from a related service professional, still while focusing on education, of course, but do we need to work on time and money and addition and subtraction and fractions? Maybe not. So let's just focus on one or two math goals, and then if they're met, we can move on to the next math goals, etc. And what that does is it takes some time off of the special education teacher's um, to-do list by way of teaching the child and by taking data or monitoring progress on those goals. So sometimes we have to use the document to our benefit. Another thing that we can do is the parents can really talk about their preference for simple exposure to the general education environment and general education um, content over a real clear understanding of the content. The example I always give is the water cycle and I don't know why, it's just what, what I think about. So if I've got a child with Down syndrome, which I do personally, I will sometimes say to the school, listen, my, my clients, don't care as much that this child really understand the water cycle in the third grade when it's taught. They don't need to know that, you know, and I don't even know what it is, right? I don't even know the water cycle, but it is important to understand where clouds come from and that clouds exist and that there's different kinds of clouds and that clouds come from water that is on the land. So the, the water goes from the lake to the clouds and then it rains because the clouds get too heavy. That is good exposure to a child. That is good information. But do we have to understand the absolute inner workings of the water cycle? No. And so I oftentimes hear parents say with a lot of humility, we aren't asking that you teach my child trigonometry. I'm not asking that the child be in eighth grade algebra five. 
What I'm asking is that we give this a try in kindergarten or that we give this a try in second grade. Those are the kinds of things that we're talking about. Sometimes it helps to be very, very humble, very, very forgiving, and to almost act like, um, while it's not a waiver, to almost say, listen, I know what you're concerned about school. You're concerned that I'm later going to say, well, they don't know everything about the water cycle. Or, my goodness, I thought we were going to be able to take algebra in eighth grade because we went all the way through sixth grade math. So sometimes it helps to say, I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for the other benefits to inclusion, those non-academic benefits and some of the academic benefits as well. But I'm looking um, for the peer relationships that happen. I'm looking um, for, I mean, I remember when I had this discussion with my own district, I said, I want my child to know that you have to wash your hands before you eat and how to sit on a carpet square and how to stand up in line. and um, who likes to be in the front of the line and who all those workers are in the classroom. I want my child to have that classroom experience and my child's entitled to that because that's what the law says. The last thing that I like to do is I like to really paint a picture of what inclusion looks like for the child in the community. So I like to pull from resources that the child does elsewhere. I like to talk about sports and activities, things that the child does at church, at camp, things that the child did in preschool or in prior grades, what the child does with babysitters, what the child does at home with siblings and um, other family members and neighbors. I like to really look at what the child's um, environment and kind of structure looks like outside of school, because oftentimes that in and of itself is the strongest argument for an inclusive setting. So that's what I like to do in order to make inclusion arguments, in order to argue that the, less the, the lesser restrictive environment is the appropriate environment. The last thing I'll leave you with is, don't forget that you can curate the right plan for your child. So if the school says, well, gosh, we really feel like we need a teacher with this certificate, and that teacher's only in this classroom, so we think we need a teacher that has a more sophisticated um, or, a, or a, um, you know, a certificate that helps them to teach children with more significant disabilities. Then maybe a strategy would be to say, okay, well, how about if we pull the teacher out of that self-contained room and that we use that teacher as a resource teacher for push-in services? What would that look like? Could we amend that teacher's schedule in order to keep the environment correct for the child? Or could we use that teacher's classroom, that self-contained classroom, more as a resource room or just a special education room, but not a self-contained room? If you think that teacher is their best teacher, then how can we utilize that teacher but still keep the child's environment very similar? So that's the last thing I'll say about inclusion. I hope this is helpful. Send me a message, comment on Facebook or Instagram. I'm so interested in your inclusion journeys. I'm so interested in how you utilize the strategies that I provide in these podcasts. If you use any of this, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you.